Amen. Well, welcome to Two Cities Church. My name's Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here. And when you got in, there was something on your seat. Grab that and look at that again. I know you know the surprise, right? You know where we're going. Uh, It has been uh, a long last 12 months. 12 months ago this week, we came back in person. Uh, We came back in person with one service on Thursday night after being closed for 15 weeks or almost four months. If you raise your hand if you came back and visit us on Thursday nights. Yeah, that's about a third of the room. Great. Thank you guys. When we came back on Thursday night, we didn't know what the future was going to look like. Right? I mean, that was June 25th. That was Thursday night of last summer. And we didn't know, you know, who was coming back. We didn't know where all of you were. We didn't know how all of you were doing. People had questions about the economy. People had questions about the future. And here we are a year later. Now, when we came back with a Thursday night service, it was like, okay, we're going to have one service. It's going to be at 6.30 on Thursday night. And we're just going to see what happens. Well, over the last 12 months, we have exploded. Exploded numerically, exploded spiritually, exploded organizationally. And we, we're just trying to, okay, so, so look around. I mean, I ask you to do this every once in a while. I mean, look around at this service, because last service was just as packed, if not more packed. And the, not, and the service tonight, because we keep moving people to Sunday night. Some of you, you keep leaving, and then more of you keep coming. And I don't know how that works. As soon as people leave, more people come. And so all three of our services are incredibly packed. Our church feels like Chick-fil-A at 12 o'clock on Saturday, <laughs> Right? And it doesn't matter how much you love Chick-fil-A, you don't really want to go at 12 o'clock on Saturday, amen? Amen, right. And so we're trying to figure out, like, it's an issue of stewardship. Here's what I want you to understand, right? Every business, every organization, every family has a calendar. And And you know, like, you know your school calendar, right? And you know your sports calendars, okay? Let me tell you, in the church calendar, guess what the slowest month of the year is? We're in it, June, and it's absolutely packed. Okay, we've got 150 college students who aren't here but are coming back. We have a, I met several this week. We have a bunch of medical, you know, whatever, right? Residents and, 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 and uh, fellows and medical students and everybody's coming in town. We've got a bunch of you, you know, still watching online and you're making your way back to in person. And so we're just trying to make as much room as possible. So why are we adding a fourth service? If you've been here with us for a while, who was here when we used to do four services on Sunday? Raise your hand. All right, a lot of you. We're never doing that again, okay? Uh, That was a lot. So then we had to say, okay, well, if we're not gonna do that, we've gotta add a fourth service. And I want you to know this because I want you to know why. The number one reason why was an issue of stewardship. We wanna make room. Why Saturday night? Well, there's multiple options. Well, we could do another service on Sunday, but that, we're not gonna do that. That's just not healthy or helpful. Uh, The other option is, could we have done something on Thursday night? That's a very popular option. And we just said, at the end of the day, we need so many of you to move when we add this service that we want to give you the absolute best service time for you and for your family. So Saturday at five o'clock is one of, we talked to the churches, it's one of the most beloved service times because you're going to be able to come. And by the way, guys, we have to move our, our, our kids ministry, our volunteers, God, I know we're having a lot of uh, back and forth. Raise your hand if you serve in the kids ministry. We know you because a lot of you are wearing your blue shirts. God bless you all. Yes. yes, clap for them. I know what y'all are thinking. Yes, other people should work in the kids ministry. Um, we, we are so grateful for you guys. And they are, in the best sense of the word, these are good. These are called problems of progress. They're overwhelmed. You would be overwhelmed if you had, you know, 22-year-olds in a class. You know, 
And, but it doesn't matter how many, it doesn't even matter how many adults you have in a class at that point. It's like, it's just so many kids, right? And one of them's always crying. Anyway, I say all that to say, we had to decide what, how are we going to, I want you to know this, how are we going to move people so that we can open up seats? Because here's the truth. When do people visit a church for the first time? Sunday mornings. And so what we think is, man, this is going to be great. This is, we found, we've heard from other churches and other families, uh, those of you with teenagers, great time to, to head to Saturday nights, have dinner afterwards. It's not a school night. Those of you with young kids, and we're hoping and praying and planning that dozens and dozens and dozens of families with young kids are going to start to come on Saturday nights instead of Sunday mornings. And, and actually, it's a great time for people who have community group and say, you know, we, usually if there's something that's not clicking perfectly with your community group, here's normally what you need more informal time together. So it might be, hey, let's all go to Saturday night together. Let's go get dinner afterwards. Let's hang out. Let's make that part of our rhythm and routine. Also, we're going to need many of you to, in new ways, commit to serving in this season. Because here's the truth. We've got to figure out how do we open up more seats over the next two years? Are we building a bigger building? Yes, we are. More information and more news about that to come this fall. We're going to be building a bigger building that's going to have over a thousand seats and we think we're going to get rid of our seating capacity problem. Uh, but in the meantime, we, we're trying to say, okay, how do we take as many people with us into this new season? How do we make room for all of the college students and all of the young professionals who are moving to our city? Let's take a moment to pray about all that, and then we're going to dive into our series. Let's pray. Lord, I want to pray right now. and just want to thank you, honor you publicly. Thank you just for giving us this building in such a strategic location for such a time as this. Lord, and we are trying to leverage it um, and use every square inch of this building and do as many services as we think would be wise in this season, Lord. And we're trying to uh, carefully launch a new service on Saturday night. Lord, I pray, I'm not here to manipulate anyone in this moment, but just I pray people would genuinely right now just think, could we move? Could our family move for a season to Saturday nights? Could we serve? Could we help to make room for more people to hear the gospel? Because we know that every time a seat opens up, it's, it's an open door for you know, a, a whole ability to have a place for that person, to serve them, to pray for them, to see them hopefully come to faith in Christ and be made disciples. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you can type to or turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. If you're new, welcome. This is what we do. We take books of the Bible. Uh, right now, we're going through a really short book. It's actually a letter. It's four chapters long. It's written by the most, well, I mean, certainly the most famous Christian who ever lived. I mean, of course, you know, Jesus Christ also, I guess you could say, was a Christian. But I'm talking about after Jesus Christ, the most famous Christian to ever live by far is the Apostle Paul. This is his final letter. What he's doing is he's writing it to his favorite person. He, was, he said, I have no one like Timothy. He loves Timothy. He invests in Timothy. He prays for Timothy. Um, and, and here's the big idea for the whole book. We've been saying this, uh, that we need to protect or preserve the gospel and then pour it out and pass it on. We need to guard it and then give it to the next generation. And why is Paul writing this letter? Because he's giving away to the next generation something very, very valuable to himself. Have you, ever had to give, have you ever had to give away something that you value to somebody else? Every father who walks his daughter down the aisle does this. I've invested in her. I prayed for her. I care for her. Now I'm going to trust and give her away. Everyone does this when their kid goes to kindergarten. <laughs> Will they care for him? Will they, you know, we, we do this when our kids go off to college. We have something or we have someone that's very, very valuable. And we feel like, you know, we're, we did the best we could with it, with him or her or it. Now we're going to pass it on to a bunch of different people, maybe one other person. Are they going to take the same care and concern for it? And so what we're seeing 
In 2 Timothy, we saw this last week, by the way, with Jeremy Woods. And if you weren't here, you need to go back and listen to that message. He is a gifted teacher, preacher, communicator. And by the way, we're not just, we're doing everything. For us, it's not either or. It's yes, 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 and both. So we're, we're doing seating capacity and sending capacity. We're, we're sending families and we're sending these people to, to Coastway Church in Myrtle Beach. Uh, we're, we're in conversations right now with a young couple that might be heading to the Middle East that we're looking to, excited about partnering with. So we, we want to continue to increase our seating capacity so that we can also increase our sending capacity as well. But he did a great job talking about, uh, in, in verses one through seven, he gives three illustrations, right? The farmer and the athlete and the soldier, and he talks about investing in, in, in the next generation. And then in verse eight, we're gonna read verse eight through 13, okay? We normally take kind of a paragraph at a time and unpack it together. And let me just give you, if you've gotta leave early or you're a note taker and you wanna just take some notes and know what is the big idea, what is the big E on the I chart for this message in this text, here it is. You forget too easily and you give up too quickly. That's the problem in your life. It's at least one of the problems that you forget way too easily. You forget about Jesus Christ. You forget about his mission. You forget about his vision. More practically, you forget your wedding vows. You forget why you're doing what you do. You forget the desires and the dreams and goals. And because you forget, and you're gonna see this when I read the text in a moment, you give up. Some of you give up so easily the first time something gets hard. And I came here this morning to tell you, stop forgetting and keep going. Keep going in your marriage. Keep going in your parenting. Keep going in your evangelism to your neighbor or to your friend or to your coworker. Keep going in your fight with sin. That's what, that's what Paul is trying to do. He's trying to give them what, what you might call staying power. How do I stay committed? So I'm gonna read you this whole passage. It's only a few verses. And then we're gonna unpack how we cannot forget and how we can keep moving forward. Look at me. At verse eight, and we'll read this together. Starting in verse eight, here's what it says. Remember Jesus Christ. So there's the don't forget, right? The opposite of don't forget is remember. Remember means I actively call to the front of my mind. That's what remember is. I actively call this again and again to the front of my mind. Remember Jesus Christ. Well, what about him? That he's risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. The gospel's not about you. The gospel's about how Jesus saves you. The gospel's about what Jesus has done. Verse nine, Paul, for which I'm suffering. And, and Paul, you know, Paul suffered so much. We've said this before. If you've been following along in this series, Paul is in prison writing this with chains on. We, we know that from this, this verse. For which I'm suffering, bound with chains, which are probably clinking back and forth as he's writing this. Bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. You can see Paul's confidence in the word of God here. Therefore, and here's the call to keep going. Therefore, I endure. We're gonna talk about that today. That's the ability to handle problems, pain, and pressure. I endure. I don't expect an easy life. I don't think things are going to happen naturally. I'm gonna keep moving forward. Therefore, I endure everything. And we'll talk about what that everything is. I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Who are they? We'll talk about them too. That they also may obtain salvation that's in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy for if we died with him, we will also live with him. You're gonna see four if then statements. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. 
And then we're given the answer. For he cannot deny himself. So I want to talk for a moment about what does it mean to remember? Notice the first thing he says here is remember Jesus Christ. I told you it means to actively call to the front of your mind. Uh, to say it negatively would be don't forget. Now, it's, it's humbling, right? Because we, we've talked about this before, but there's something theologians call the noetic effects of the fall. The noetic effects of the fall are the effects of the fall on the mind. There's many of them. One of them is that you tend to forget things, right? We now, we know from the best studies that we have is that you forget, and I forget, about 55% of what happens after it's been an hour, right? So if I were to ask you what happened in the last, you know, the last hour of your life, you could tell me just a few things. You wouldn't be able to call every detail of every moment. Then after one week, they say you, you forget 66% of things. And then after, or sorry, after one day, after one week, you forget 75% of what's happened in your life. It's kind of humbling. It's like, well, why is that? Well, here's what happens. We, we remember, another question people ask is, well, what, what do you remember? And the answer to that, it's, it's hard to you know, say exactly what we remember, but this is important because if we're called to remember, we gotta ask, well, how do we do that? You remember that which is important to you. Right, so here's how it actually works. Before remembering, or before you forget, I should say, what, what do you do before you forget? You assume, or you take for granted. And nobody and nothing is honored by being assumed and taken for granted. So the reason that your spouse would be upset if you forgot her anniversary, or your anniversary, what, what, like what's the big deal about that? Well, the big deal is you forgot. Well, what's the big deal about forgetting? You forgot because it wasn't important. Because that's what happens, we forget things that aren't important to us. And this is a big deal because, you know, people who study, how does Christianity disappear in a place? And that, unfortunately, that happens. You know, you can go, I don't know if you know this, Harvard started to train ministers. It's not doing that anymore, okay? Well, what happened there? Well, from the best thing, the best research we can find is one generation, it takes about four generations for the faith to be lost completely. One generation believes, this is the story of like every church that's gone theologically liberal. Every time I see a building, right? You see a building, you go, someone paid for that. Someone raised money for that. Someone gave to that. Someone believed in that. Well, that was the first generation faith. That's, I really believe this. What tends to happen in a second generation faith is, I assume it. I do, yeah, of course I believe this, right? Some of you are waiting, you're just too, you're gonna forget because you're just so familiar with Jesus, the Bible, the church, mission, salvation, the gospel message, we become very familiar with them. And then after we, so it's, it's one generation believes, the next assumes, the next forgets, and the final forsakes. And so how do we remember? Well, there's, there's three main ways that people say you can remember things. And it's, it's, I wish there was some silver bullet I could tell you. Here's how you remember things. You have to repeat them to yourself. You have to keep seeing them again and again and again and again and again. This is why the Bible says so many of the same things over and over and over. You know, do not fear is mentioned 366 times for every day of the year plus leap year. Okay, that's how many times. You're, you're just, it's again and again and again, right? What, this verse starts with remember. Next week we'll, be, we'll start in verse 14. If you, if you got your Bible in front of you, you look down at verse 14, what's the word? Remind. I want you to remember and then I want you to remind other people and, and just keep doing that, Right? Because the first thing, the only way that, this is why scripture memory is a big deal, because we have to remember the word of God. The second thing, the, the second way that, the, that we remember something is we attach it to things we already know or life we're already living. So in other words, the, the second way that you can remember things is you attach it to real life situations. You, this is why once you see somebody else live it out, once you apply it in your own life, you'll begin to remember it more. This is why, you, you, this is why what you believe is affected by how you behave. 
The more you live out scripture, the more you're actually gonna know it and love it and embrace it and believe it. And then thirdly, the third way that you remember things is you, you remember them by stories. I mean, this is the story of our ancestors. I mean, just so you know, I mean, the way that we've passed information on forever is through story. I'll tell you how powerful story is. The only presidents of the United States of America that you know about are the ones you know, outside of those who were presidents during your lifetime, are those you know stories about. Why do you know about George Washington? Because you know stories. Why do you know about JFK? Because you know the story of his assassination. Why do you know about Abe Lincoln? Because you know about the Civil War. That's, that's why you know these. I, I, I would name more presidents, but I don't know who they are. <laughs> and neither do you. Because we don't know them if we don't know stories about them. And so, so we've got to remember things. Um, and so he's going to tell us, hey, here's what I want you to remember. He says, he says, I want you to remember Jesus Christ. And, and look what he says in verse 8. He says, I want you to remember that he's risen from the dead and the offspring of David. That's a good way to say I want you to remember his divinity and his humanity. That's, that, that's what that sentence means. Risen from the dead, Paul says in Romans 1, Jesus Christ was declared to be the son of God by his resurrection. Here's what that means. Um, the resurrection was the way that everybody would know for absolute sure that Jesus was the son of God, that he was who he said he was. Did he do miracles in his life? Yes. He had a teaching, healing, you know, preaching ministry. Um, did he make claims? Yes. Did he, have, did he teach with authority? Yes. Could all of those things let you know that he was the son of God? Yes. But how did you know for sure, for sure, for sure, for sure? The resurrection. The second thing is he's the offspring of David. Now that's his humanity. I don't know if you know this, both Mary and David were descendants, sorry, both Mary and Joseph were descendants of David. Uh, uh, Joseph's genealogy shows up in Matthew 1. Mary's genealogy shows up in Luke chapter three. Both of them were descendants of David. So he's talking about his humanity. Let, let me bring it down for us. Here's a couple things I think we need to remember about Jesus, that he was a real person. I mean, it's just like our, our faith is not, thankfully, because you, you will have the dark night of the soul, you will. You'll have doubts. People will say things to you. You'll wake up at three in the morning. And you, if, you're, if you're really trying to live this out, you're gonna ask yourself every once in a while, is this real? And one of the things that you'll do is, one of the helpful things is to say, okay, well, it's actually based, it's not based on fable or fairy tale or myth or speculation. It's based on the person of Jesus Christ who really lived. We have a, here's what we have, if you wanna use big words. We have a historical faith with a theological interpretation. That's what we have. So we have a historical faith. Jesus Christ lived, Jesus Christ died, there was an empty tomb. We believe he rose from the dead. We have a theological interpretation and we understand his life, his death, and his resurrection and what it means for us. The, the second thing about Jesus is we have to remember he's risen from the dead. So you see real, that's the offspring of David. He really lived. He was a Galilean peasant. He was a carpenter. You know, he, we, we know he lived. Josephus and other people talked about him outside of the scriptures. The second thing is he's risen from the dead. He's alive. Now, most of us, when we share the gospel, and by the way, the gospel just means the good news of how God saves sinners through his son, Jesus. When we share the gospel, a lot of us forget to talk about the resurrection. If you share the gospel with somebody, you say, hey, I want to tell you something. God made you. Okay, well, that's the first part of the gospel. You're sinful. Okay, that's the second part of the gospel. Um, Christ died to pay the penalty for your sin. Okay, that's good. You need to repent and believe in him. It's like, you forgot to tell me that he's alive. <laughs> you forgot to tell me that he's risen from the dead. You forgot to tell me that he's currently a living Lord and a risen redeemer. So, so that's the idea of the risen nature of Christ. Third is, what is he doing? He's reigning. So what do you, when you think about he's risen from the dead, what is he doing? Is he twiddling his thumbs? No. Is he just hanging out in heaven? No. The Bible says he's currently reigning. Here's what that means. I'm in control and I'm on mission. And that's really, really important. This is the final teaching of Jesus before he goes to heaven. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. 
And that's really, really important because I'll tell you what's important to It's important to the guy I was talking to a year or two ago who was going through radiation for his cancer. And he said, I got to go in. And, you know, some of you have been through this or you have family members who've been through this. And if you have to go through radiation, it's like, well, you're going into that room all alone. And no one comes in, at least for certain periods of that time, because of the amount of radiation. And sometimes that lasts for a really, really long time. And he said, I got to eat in this room. He said, and I'm all by myself. He said, but then I know Jesus Christ is there with me. And that's, that's the hope that I have. And then finally, he's returning, right? That's the, these are the helpful ways. That, when you hear risen from the dead, also think reigning and returning. He's going to come back. He's going to, this is how it's going to end. He's going to, he's going to come back. The Bible says he's going to split the sky. He's going to return you know, visibly, bodily from the sky at the end of time. All Christians have forever believed that. And in fact, the number one thing to tell, the number one maybe tool to tell how you're doing spiritually is to ask yourself, how do you feel about the return of Christ? How eager are you for him to return? So we're told to remember him. And then look what it says, verse eight, as preached in my gospel. How do we remember him? We have to hear and sit under the preaching of the gospel continuously. This is why the weekly church gathering, doesn't have to be at Two City Church, but just so you know, wherever you're, you're gathering, it is so important, the weekly worship every seven days. This is why we know this. I know this from 15 years of ministry. What's the number one sign that someone's not doing well? Repeated absence. 100%. We're not saying you can't go on vacation. We're not saying you can't get sick. The person who stops showing up, they've either forgotten or they want to forget. Right? Because you ever have that? I don't know if I want to be reminded. I don't know if I want you to tell me what I'm doing is wrong. I don't know if I want to go sing about Jesus for 15 minutes. I don't know if I want to see all the people that remind me that I say that I'm going to follow Christ. This is why the weekly gathering of the church, and I would say by extension, the community group time, all, what that is, is that's built in reminders into your life. And if you, if you come and you're like, well, you know, if you're like a normal person and you, you know, you're gone for a couple weeks for vacation, but most times you're here, it's like, well, then 45 to 50 times a year, you're in church and you're under the word and you're around the people of God. It has a transforming effect on your life. So the first thing he says is, remember Jesus Christ. Next, he wants to talk about the power of the word. Look at verse nine. So if you're taking notes, maybe you'd say, remember the person of Christ. Second, maybe remember the power of the word. He says this, for which I'm suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. But the word of God is not bound. Um, so Paul's saying, look, I'm, I'm in a prison now. He's bound. Now, have we ever felt bound before? I mean, not obviously, you know, maybe some of us have been to prison, but most of us haven't been to prison. We haven't felt that layer of being bound. But I would say during the lockdowns, during COVID, did you ever feel that way? Yeah. It's like all of a sudden, it's like, I can't go anywhere. Nothing's open. Everything's closed. Uh, everybody's working from home. Everybody became a homeschoolers overnight. <laughs> We're all trying to figure it out and it's completely overwhelming. What we found, I'll just give you one small example of how I think sometimes you think something's bound, but the word of God isn't bound. I remember when we went to online only. And when we did online only, just letting you know our experience, when we did online only, you know, we would come in this room, our staff would, and I would just talk to that camera right there. Nobody else would be in here. And I'm a highly relational person. And I'm constantly watching how everybody's acting in here. And I'm constantly reading the room as I'm talking. And so to, 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 to speak to basically nobody in the camera and to do it for 15 weeks, we just felt like there's no power in this. We were missing the gathering. And we, what we didn't know at the same time is, is 
because we found this out afterwards, right? This is, and we're, I think heaven's gonna be this. We're just gonna find out a bunch of stories later. But I, can, I would tell you, whenever I meet somebody new, I always ask, you know, how'd you hear about two cities and why'd you come back? And I would say for the first six months once we started coming back together, the answer was, oh, I started watching during COVID. I hadn't been to church in a while or we just moved to the city and we just started watching online. I'm like, oh, wow, okay. We felt bound. We couldn't open the building. We couldn't have service. We couldn't gather. We had all that kind of, we didn't know how everybody was doing. We, we felt like we're just talking across the room. Is anybody even tuning in and listening? How's everybody doing? And we saw, man, the word of God is, is not bound. It's having a powerful influence. I want you to know that people have always tried to bind the word of God, right? I mean, one of the most encouraging things about the scriptures is how you see how they have endured throughout every empire, throughout every nation, throughout every civilization. I mean, do you know how many people wanted to burn and banish the Bible? I love what Charles Spurgeon said. Charles Spurgeon said, he, he was asked one time, if he was an 18th, uh, 1800s preacher, you know, a genius guy. And somebody asked him one time, how would you defend the Bible? And he said, I would no more defend the Bible than I would defend a lion. He said, all I do is let it out of the, its cage and it has its own effect. It can defend itself. And I think that's exactly what we see with the word of God. I wanna tell you that I want us to really have a belief in the power of the word of God. I wanna tell you what the word of God does. There is nothing more powerful on earth that we have than the written down word of God than when it's, when it's spoken, shared, and understood by others. So let me tell you what the word of God does. Number one, it creates things. This is what God's word does. And you can go back to Genesis one. What is God doing at the very beginning of creation? Well, you know, it's empty, it says. This is Genesis one, it says it's empty. It says there's, there's nothing there. It's like, well, what is nothing? It's hard for us to think what is nothing. Nothing is what rocks dream about. That's nothing, okay? <laughs> That's nothing. I mean, it's not, there's nothing. It says that it was form and voidless. That means there was chaos. It says it was dark. And then God speaks. And what happens? This is important. When the word of God comes, when the word of God is spoken, darkness turns into light. What does darkness in the Bible mean? Darkness means two things. It means misunderstanding. They're in darkness. They don't understand. And it means evil. They do dark deeds. So when light comes, it exposes those things. So, and and here's, here's the thing. I want to encourage you. Wherever there is darkness in your life, we need to bring the word of God in. Wherever there is disorder and chaos, and some of your lives are chaotic completely. You are internally chaotic. There is so much disintegration in your life. And how do you do, how do you fix that? You begin to bring the word of God in and it begins to bring order into chaos. God can do in the human heart the same thing that he does in creation. He can take nothing and bring something out of it. The second thing is conviction. So this is what the word of God does. It speaks to us so deeply. I had a lunch this week with a couple and the gentleman said to me, I've got a question for you. And this happens all the time. He said, do people tell you all the time that when you're preaching, you say things out loud that we feel inside? And I say, yeah, somebody tells me that basically every week. And it's not me. It's just, it's the power of the word of God. I, I've had people stop me and say after service, do you have video cameras in our home? <laughs> no, no, we don't, no, no. Um, <laughs> You know, but, but it, why is that? It's because that's what the word of God does. It speaks to us deep down in our hearts and it gets to, the Bible says, our motives and our intentions and our desires and our excuses and our ignorance and our, and worse, our willful blindness. It, it deals with, that. Hebrews 4 talks all about that. The next thing it does is it converts people. This is the power of the word of God. 
that you hear it and it can change literally your legacy, your lineage, your destiny, your eternity. It can transform the human heart to give you new desires and affections. It can make you born again. The Bible says we're born again according to the word of God. It's so powerful. And then finally, it, it counsels and it comforts us. That's what it does. I mean, that functionally, at the most practical level, if you're a Christian, that's what the word of God does to you. You're just, you know, no matter where you are in your life, and I don't know each one of your stories, but how you know that you're becoming more and more of a mature believer is you're asking this, what does the Bible say about, well, it's, it's whatever area of your life it is. All of a sudden, you start making a ton of money. You're like, well, I never thought about what to do with tons of money. Maybe I need to ask, what does the scripture say? What do you do with tons of money? You have kids or you become a grandfather. What does the Bible say about being a grandfather? I've never, I'm not gonna normally ask that question, right? It's always need to know, need to grow. I need to know this and I need to grow in this. So I'm gonna turn to the word of God and by faith, I believe that the word of God is gonna speak to this. And so he says, this is it. He says, I want you to remember the word of God. It's not bound. It's not bound by who's in the White House. Amen. It's not bound by who's on the Supreme Court. It's, it's not bound by the intelligence of the culture or the worldliness of the culture. You have to, when you study the scriptures, you realize Ephesus was just as religious and rebellious as Winston-Salem or the rest of the world. And so the only way that functionally the word of God gets bound is when Christians decide to willfully bind it themselves and not share it. That we would have it and not, we have two jobs, get it right and get it out. <laughs> That's it, very, very simple. Get it right, okay, what does the scripture say? right? Because the power's in the word understood, and then I need to get it out. I need to get it out to my kids, to discipling, all that. So here's a, here's a third thing. So first, he says, remember Jesus Christ. Second, he says, remember the power of the word. Third, he's going to say, remember the priority of the mission. If you're taking notes, remember the priority of the mission. Verse 10, therefore, in light of Jesus Christ and the power of the word, therefore, and this is where I want to spend a little bit of time, I endure everything. Why, Paul? Why are you in prison again? Why do you do it? Why do you make it so hard on the rest of us, Paul? You know, I have to tell you, it's about halfway done preaching 2 Timothy. It's not a hard book to preach in the sense that there's not a lot of controversial topics in it. We, we, I've done a lot of those books where it's like, oh no, we're gonna talk about this this week. But it's a hard book to preach because it's just like, be all in. Don't be ashamed. Don't be afraid. Pass it on to the next generation. Embrace suffering. So he says this, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation that's in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. I want to talk first about what Paul has to endure, and then next what we have to endure. So Paul, he was unique. Just so you know, when the, if you don't know this, when the apostle Paul was converted, he goes over to this guy's Ananias' house, and Ananias is going to pray for him. And God tells Ananias, because Ananias is like, well, this is the apostle. This is, this is uh, Saul. He killed Christians. You want me to pray for him? And, uh, and God says, I want you to. I've converted him. He's my chosen instrument. And the next thing he says is, I will show him how much he must suffer for me. That's, that was the beginning of Paul's ministry. And here's the thing about Paul, and I thought about this a lot this week. If you read 2 Corinthians 11, you may want to write that down. The best interpreter of scripture is scripture. And so in your community group, you may want to read 2 Corinthians 11 together. Paul goes through all of his sufferings. And I'm going to just talk a little bit about them because here's what Paul says. Paul says, I've received countless, this is basically verbatim what he says. I've received countless beating, beatings and numerous or many imprisonments. 
Now, it's like, how many times do you have to be beat to go, I lost count, <laughs> right? If I was beat for Jesus Christ, I'm counting them all. <laughs> that was number 22, right? I mean, how much do you have to just, for, like, how much, Paul, it's like, how much are you getting beat up, man? Many imprisonments? We know several of your letters, I mean, there's certain letters that are called the prison epistles. And the dude's in prison so much, he's got a type of letter called the prison epistle. It's like, yeah, Paul was in prison when he wrote this one. But then he, Paul says, Paul says, well, he goes, he goes, I was shipwrecked three times. Paul had things that never have happened to us once happen to him again and again and again, right? If, if, you were, if I was shipwrecked one time, I'm not getting on a boat again, right? Does anyone else feel that way? He says, I was beaten with rods three times. This is all in the same area. He actually says in 2 Corinthians 11, he goes, I probably shouldn't share all this, but I'm talking like a madman, he says, but I got to tell you what I've been through. He says, 40 times I received from the Jews. uh, Sorry, five times I received from the Jews, 40 lashes minus one. The reason that they would do 40 minus one is because they thought 40 would kill you. So they would want to take you to the very, very end of your life. Well, Paul did that five times. And then Paul says, well, it's just not the physical things because it is the physical things. And, you know, and, and we, you know, but in our life today, we don't have a lot of, that I know of, in our nation currently, thank God, a, a lot of physical pain, right? It's not for us the raised, eye, or the raised fist. It's always the raised eyebrow that we're scared of. Paul, but Paul, he also says, he says, and then he says, the Gentiles don't like me and my own people hate me, the Jews. See, what happens is if you teach the gospel, you offend different groups of people. When you teach the gospel, you offend the rebellious people because you tell them your lifestyle is not something to celebrate, it's something to repent of, and it's something Christ had to die for. And that's, you know, that's hard to say out loud to people. You're celebrating sin, you need to repent of it. And your sin is so terrible, God had to kill his own son to deal with it. Well, that's offensive to rebellious people. And then religious people, you have to tell them they have to repent of their religion. You tell, you tell the rebellious, you need to repent of being bad. You tell the religious people, you need to repent of being good, of trying to make it to God on your own, right? And so you, you tell them these things, and so he says that. And then Paul says at the very end, this is why you love the Apostle Paul, and it's like you, we all want to have this heart. He says, you know, he talks about all his beatings, and he talks about, you know, the Gentiles hate me and the Jews hate me. And then he says, on top of all of this, he said, there's the daily anxiety in my heart toward all the churches, in other words, Paul says, and then I really care about like, all the churches I planted, and I'm always wondering how they're doing. He says, who's weak and I'm not weak? And so you just see this massive heart. And I just ask you, I mean, what would it look like for you to endure? endure I mean, because some of you, you can't endure anything. I mean, I respectfully, but the first time a temptation comes to you, the first time to look at something, you're like, I'm giving in. The first time an opportunity to do something wrong happens, you want to give in. Endurance is the ability to handle pain, the ability to handle pressure, the ability to handle problems. And we need to increase our capacity. What they say is when you get to the, you know, the high level in sports, the highest level, the pro level, the division one level, they say for the most part, skill set is the exact same. What, what basically makes the difference between a good professional baseball player and a great professional baseball player is their ability to endure pain. How much pain can they put themselves through in their, in their practice and in their training and in their workout? Paul says he endures everything. I heard one guy, he said, if you're not hurting, you're not leading. 
Some of you, you are unwilling to hurt and you will not have the conversation with your daughter or your son that you need to have because you don't know what to do if a 17-year-old girl is mad at you. Some of you keep apologizing to your spouse for things that you're not sorry about. But you do it because you don't want to have a long, hard conversation. You don't want it to feel icy in the house for a day or two. So you'll just continue to have the same fight for 10 years instead of ever dealing with it. Paul says, I'm willing to endure everything. Now, we have to say, now why, Paul? Look what he says, for the elect. Now, who are the elect? That's a really long answer, but here's the really short version. Every person who does believe and every person who ever will believe is the elect. And Paul says, I do it, first he says, I do it for the church. Isn't that amazing? Paul says, I endure, it's like, why do I do this? It's like, because I love the church. Why am I getting beat up? Because I love the church. It's like, Paul was willing to endure, endure everything. Some of you can't even serve one and attend one consistently. Paul was willing to endure everything. Some of you can't give anything to the kingdom of God because you would have to lower your standard of living just a little bit, and you couldn't endure that. Paul was willing to endure anything. Some of you can't commit to a community group or to showing up consistently in any type of worship environment. And we look to Paul and we say, Paul, you're willing to endure it for the elect. Now, there's, now let me explain this. There are the elect that, that do believe that say, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Christ. Then there are people who will never believe. This is just a reality of scripture and it's heartbreaking. It broke Paul's heart. Paul said he would weep over them. There are people who will never believe. It doesn't matter how much you pray for them. It doesn't matter how much you share with them. It doesn't matter how much you suffer for them. There are people who will never believe. That's not who Paul's talking about. When really Paul says, if you look at verse 10, when Paul says, I endure everything for the elect, here's what Paul's saying. I endure everything for the current Christians. And I endure everything for those who will believe. That's his heart. It's like, Paul, why are you going to a new place? It's gonna be really, really hard there, right? Every time the gospel breaks through, it's gonna be really, really hard. You know, you, this is the motivation for mission. You might go, why, why, you know, why preach the gospel to upper class, you know, upper middle class people who think they have everything? It's like, well, because you believe that God might be working in the hearts. Why go to these college campuses with arrogant 18-year-olds? who want nothing to do with God and think that we're silly for being there because we actually believe that they'll believe. Why go to Mumbai where there's 25 million people in the greatest concentration of, hum of spiritual lostness on earth because we believe people will believe. I was, I was recently at a, at a conference, an event, and they had a missionary sending night. And I had never been to this before, so I was like, I gotta go to it because that hurt, you gotta go. And I was overwhelmed because when I showed up, there was like 15,000 people in the room and they had a, a big stage and they had a big white sheet that was hanging. And from behind, you couldn't see them, but they would have these missionaries that were gonna be sent out all over the world. They would walk up from behind the stage, you couldn't see them, and you'd see their silhouette walking up behind this white curtain. And you could see their silhouette and they would have a mic there. And all it would say was a vague area they were going to. They're going to Central Asia. They're going to Northern Africa, because you can't really tell where they're, you couldn't really tell where they're going. They're not allowed to, and you can't see their faces. But you'd hear this, it was always usually a husband and wife, you'd hear them talk. And they'd say things like, hey, please pray for us as, you know, we've got to get all of our visas together and, and, you know, the grandparents don't understand, they're not Christians. 
and we're not going to get to see our, uh, our kids aren't going to see their grandparents for the next few years. Would you please, would you just please pray for us? Or you hear them say things like, hey, we're going to feel like we're in preschool and elementary school for the next decade as we learn this language. Would you please pray for us? And you just go, why do people do these things? Because if you meet these people, and I had a chance to talk to a few of them afterwards, they, they, they're not shallow people. You don't go and like sell your house and move your life across the country. It's like, the reason they do it is they like, I believe that people are going to believe in the Middle East. But we have, to, we have to go there and we have to, you know, it's like, I wish we knew who would believe and who wouldn't believe, right? Don't you, you wish like someone had like a, their left eye was yellow, you know? <laughs> You're going to believe, I just can see it. You know, or they have a little red cross on the back of their neck that they don't know that they have that you could see. You know, no, it's like the only way that you know who's going to ultimately believe is you indiscriminately preach the gospel That's right. to as many people as possible and then some believe. And you go, this is incredible. And then you say, this is why I did this. I remember when I was doing college ministry, I, you know, when I was doing college ministry, I would, I would go in these dorm rooms and, you know, I'm 25 years old and I'm going into these dorms and I'm meeting in the cafeteria and, you know, everybody thinks I'm a loser. True story. But, but what would happen is every once in a while, someone would come to faith in Christ and then it would all make sense to them. They, they would go, oh, that's why you went to my dorm. Amen. It's like, exactly. That's why you came into the cafeteria. That's why you did that. It's just, it, it all begins, and, it, and you can say this, but tell me, yeah, I did that for you. I love God, and I wanted to see people come to faith in Christ, and now you go do that for other people. And that's how the church advances, and that's how missions multiplies. So he says, remember the power of the gospel. Remember the person of Christ. Remember the priority of the mission. And finally, remember the promises of God. I want you to see this. If you look at me at verses 11 through 13, it says this. By the way, this is a saying. You'll see right in verse 11, it says the saying, which means it's like, we don't know if it's a saying well, we know it's a saying. He says it's a saying. We don't know if it was also a song, uh, if it was ever put to music. But, but by the way, if you're going to remember things, they need to be passed down and you need to have tradition. What tradition is, is tradition is how you transfer truth. That's the best form of tradition, right? We don't have a lot of traditions left in our nation. Probably the wedding ceremony is one of the last traditions. And it's got so much truth in it from why the brides walk down the aisle to why the husband waits to why the vows are done the way they are. It's all tradition that holds truth so it can be transferred. That's what's happening here. The saying is trustworthy for, and then there's four, four um, if-then statements. Here they are. If we've died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Let's talk about each of those really briefly. The first is he says, if we die, we will live with him. Um, there's two types of dying with Christ. The first happens when we transfer trust to Jesus. I don't understand, right? You don't, you don't have to understand everything to believe everything, um, every detail about it. But there's something happened to where in the mind and heart of God, when you transfer trust to Jesus, when you confess with your mouth that he's Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, somehow you are united with Christ such that his life counted as your life and his death counts as your death. You died with him and you're, you've risen with him. There's, it's a spiritual but meaningful reality. That, so when the Bible talks about we've died with Christ, it's talking about the one-time event, but then it's talking about the daily event. Paul says, if you read in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I die daily. It's like, Paul, again, what do, you, what do you mean by that? It's like Paul dies to himself and to safety daily. Right? If you've ever, and some of you have not, but if you've ever tried to put a sin to death in your life, 
If you've ever said, I'm going to really repent of this sin in my life, it's going to feel like you're dying. If you're really going to say no to some addiction in your life, some habit in your life, man-pleasing in your life, bitterness in your life, unforgiveness in your life, consumerism in your life, materialism in your life, lust in your life, it's going to feel like you're dying. That's the experience. And you go, this doesn't, this doesn't feel natural. Exactly. It's I'm dying to myself. But then we have to die to safety. I mean, could you imagine the Apostle Paul giving a talk on safety? Could you imagine the risen Lord? All right, guys, I'm about to head to heaven. Let me, 15 minutes on safety. You know, it's like, now we're not anti, we're not against, you know, we're not saying be unsafe, right? There, I mean, whenever somebody tells me, have a safe flight, I always go, I hope so, right? There's two flights, right? The safe flight and the one you hear about, okay? <laughs> so yeah, have a safe flight, drive safely, that all makes sense. But I don't know if, if we want, for our whole life, the last words that our kids hear us say is be careful and be safe all the time. I mean, good values. But I want you to do something courageous. I want you to stand up for Christ in his kingdom. Amen. So then he says, if you endure, we will reign. Here, here's, I don't have time to get into all this, but here's it very simply. We have to have the right expectations of how things go. You don't get to go around things. You have to go through them. That's a huge principle of life. You have to, it, it's what, it's like, okay, what is Christ? Christ is the model. It's humiliation before exaltation. It's, uh, it's cross before crown. Right? That we, we have to go through it. Some of us, we expect, we have the wrong expectations for our lives. We think marriage is going to be easier than it is. We think kids are going to be easier than it is. We think making money is going to be easier than it is. We think we can be a Christian and still be cool. And we have the wrong expectations. And then he, he ends with these final two ones. If we deny him, he will deny us. It's like, okay, this makes sense. If we deny him, he will deny us. But then at the end, it almost seems to reverse it. What does this mean? If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Well, let's start. First of all, he cannot deny himself means there's certain things that, you know, God cannot do. I know all things are possible with God, but, but God cannot lie. God cannot change. God cannot break his promises. It would be contrary to his character. So when it says, uh, if we are faithless, God will be faithful. It's like, well, how does that work with the verse before it? If we deny him, he will deny us. It's like, does the Bible contradict itself? No, what it's saying is, if we are faithless, God will be faithful to do what he said he will do to the faithless. This, it actually ends not with a promise of comfort, but a promise that's a warning toward us. Now, it's like, well, now, the truth is none of us have been faithful perfectly, obviously. This is why when we, that final verse, for God cannot deny himself it is a reminder of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The whole gospel message, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, at the center of the gospel is the reality that God cannot deny himself. It's like, all right, why does Jesus have to come and live a sinless, perfect life? Because God said, look, I, I'm not compromising all my character. I said I need someone to have a perfect record. I need somebody to perfectly obey. And I'm sorry, I'm God. I can't go against what I've said. I need a perfect record. And then what's the cross about? What's the bloody cross of Jesus Christ crying out, Father, why have you forsaken me? That's God saying, I'm not backing away. I can't sweep sin under the rug. I can't act like it's no big deal. I need to punish it. It needs to be paid for. So Jesus Christ, way before the apostle Paul said it, Jesus Christ said it. Jesus said, I will endure everything for the sake of the elect. 
And he doesn't just endure imprisonments and beatings. He had that. He endured, the gospel is that Jesus Christ endured the wrath of God for us. And what we do is we honor him by remembering him. We actively call him to the front of our minds and we do it, we're gonna do it in a moment by singing. We're gonna do, you do it every time you pray. You do it every time you join as a community group. We remember Jesus Christ and we remember the power of the word of God become flesh. We remember the mission of God toward us and now we join in that mission as he goes out, risen, reigning, ultimately returning, doing in his heavenly ministry what he did in his, heavenly, or in his earthly ministry, seeking and saving sinners, making and multiplying disciples. Let's pray. Lord, I, I just pray right now for all of us. Lord, we wanna remember Jesus Christ. Lord, uh, help us not to fall into practical and functional atheism. Lord, every time that any of us in this room give in to some type of sin, it, we, we become functional and practical atheists. We forget you, Lord. That's our first problem. Our first problem in our marriage is that we forget you. Our first problem in our fight with sin is that we forget you. Lord, while we become lazy or we've become content in our sin is we have forgotten you, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would help each of us to experience the power of your word. I hope we've experienced it the service today. I hope we'll experience it as we sing your word together. Lord, I pray for the power of your word to come in lives and homes and apartments and apartments and communities and neighborhoods. The creating, convicting, converting power of your word, Lord. May it go out from our church into our city. We pray this in your name. Amen.